Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I'm very encouraged today because several of you emailed me on Thursday and Friday and you told me that you had not forgotten the sermon last Sunday and that you were actually praying for other people in our congregation, praying for their spiritual welfare and their spiritual growth. So last week I was a little discouraged, but this week I am really encouraged and I'm just thanking God that he's working among you and in us as we pray for each other and encourage each other in our spiritual walk with God. Today we come now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in this chapter, in this book, this is a turning point. There is a new tone in this chapter. In first three chapters of First Thessalonians, Paul was telling more about his own experience and thanking God. First of all, let's review just a little bit. Chapter 1, Paul was thanking God for the report that he had about this church and how their lives had been transformed, transformed and their testimony now was going out throughout the whole world. And he was very grateful to God for that. He was overjoyed to hear about their faith and love and hope in Christ. He thanks them for accepting his message as a message from God himself. And because they had put their full trust in Christ as the risen and redeeming Messiah, their lives were so transformed that their testimony now was being broadcast throughout the whole region of Macedonia and Greece. Then in chapter 2, Paul proclaims the gospel with boldness and authority. He's defending himself because some had felt, well, he just came and he left so quickly. But he says he was encouraged because he preached the gospel as, if, as it came from God himself. And he did that even though there were threats and there was persecution and there was opposition. And as a caring parent, he was using this word to encourage them, instruct them, disciple them, so that they could fully trust in God's word, 
even if persecution should come. Then in chapter 3, he takes on the heart of a pastoral, congregational care pastor, if you will, because he's there concerned for their spiritual health. And he prays fervently that they will grow more and more in their love for him. He tells them that even though he was torn away from them physically, his heart remained with them, and he would never forget them in his prayers day and night. His heart was deeply concerned about their spiritual health, and he sent Timothy to supply what was lacking in their faith. And he prayed with them, with great, for them with great urgency that they would grow in holiness and love. And then chapter 4 says, finally now. <clears throat> that probably is not a good translation because he's still got two chapters to go. But it does mean he's changing his perspective. And now he turns to some very practical instructions. And he begins this chapter with a very general principle for the Christian life. He says, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to walk and to please God. Now, our walk is our lifestyle. That's how we behave. That's how we live day by day. And our daily behavior, he said, should be worthy of God. It should be pleasing to God. And he says this is a general principle, a basic principle for how we as Christians should be living. Live in order to please God. We must be careful, though, how we understand this principle. One of the things we learned in the DTM, as we learned, studied this text, is that you need to know how the text was understood by the original audience. It cannot mean to us something that it did not mean to them. And so it's very important for us to try to understand how did the Thessalonian church understand this principle, live in order to please God? <clears throat> well, part of that original audience were the Jewish believers in that church of Thessalonica. Now, the traditional Jews were very intent on pleasing God but for a very different reason than what Paul had in mind. You see, they obeyed the rules and the commands of God in order to earn God's favor and blessing. This was rigid legalism, which believes we must somehow work hard in order to please him and to win his favor and acceptance. It's obedience of legalism. It's when we work hard for God in order to earn his favor. We're not operating out of faith in him. But the Bible says that we are justified by grace through faith, and that alone. 
And it is not any kind of work on our own, but a free gift from God. Our salvation is and ever will be a result of his grace and not of our works. There is nothing we could ever do to earn God's favor. And if we are in Christ, we have his favor forever. But I'm afraid that some of us, even in our modern church today, have some of this legalistic mentality of obedience without faith. Let me give you some examples. A man says, I think I'll put in an extra $10 in the offering. Maybe God will help me get a raise at work. Or a woman might say, I'd better go to church every Sunday this month so God will answer my prayers. Or a student says, I'll read the Bible and I'll even carry it to class so God will help me on my next exam. Some older people say, I've lived a pretty good life. I haven't committed murder or adultery, so I hope God will give me a good place in heaven. Every time we bargain with God, trying to get him to help us, we are coming with the mentality of a religion of works. It means we don't fully trust God to save and help us. We believe we somehow we have to obey the rules in order to get his blessing. It is the obedience of legalism. And this is not what Paul is teaching by this principle of pleasing God by holy living. It does mean, however, to serve and honor God as our Savior, as the one who has already justified us who believe. And he demonstrates that himself in the way he worked to please God. And we saw this in chapter 2, verse 4. He says that he preached the gospel in such a way to please God, not people. He did not mean that he preached in order to gain or earn God's favor and blessing. He says, on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 4. Paul speaks as one who is already approved by God. So he speaks in order to honor and to serve the one who has already approved him for this ministry. And this is the obedience of faith in the redeeming work of Christ. That's what Paul meant when he says, please God by your holy living. So we can paraphrase, I think, Paul's instruction by saying, pleasing God means doing his good pleasure in order to honor him as our savior, as the one who has justified us. Now there was another audience in this church in Thessalonica, and that were the Greek believers. And this idea of pleasing God by holy living was a whole new idea to them. 
quite different than how the Jews understood it. For Greeks, this certainly did not mean, as they had learned to do in their culture, to please God meant to pursue your own selfish pleasures. Paul describes believers in Thessalonica, the, Jew, the Greeks, as those who have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's how he thought of them in chapter 1, verse 9. Now, when we think about Greek believers, we have to remember they came out of a pagan culture of idol worship. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes these pagan Greeks as those who did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They were people who lived by the passionate lusts of their physical desires. Therefore, he says, God gave them over in the sinful desires and lusts of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. The Roman Greek culture was very promiscuous in its moral standards. Sexual activity outside of marriage was not considered immoral at all. It was accepted as the cultural norm. One of their philosophers actually wrote it down and said, as a matter of course, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children. Did you hear that? I hope you sense some resonance with our American culture. Because you see, it's, it seems to me anyway, that our grand goal in our culture is to enjoy life by pleasing ourselves. For example, in a recent magazine article discussing vacation homes as investments, it led with this caption, the number one reason to build a vacation home is to enjoy yourself. Today, more than ever, our society is caught up in a concern for health and personal well-being. After all, our Constitution guarantees us the pursuit of happiness. We have the right to be happy, don't we? Whether in the ancient world or today, people believe the chief end of humanity has been to take pleasure in this life. In contrast, our passage here says that the chief goal of the Christian life is to take pleasure in pleasing God. Such passages in Scripture have fueled the confession of faith which says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. For the Greek believers in the young church at Thessalonica, 
This instruction from Paul was a whole new idea. Somehow that they were not to pursue their own selfish pleasures, but to please God. And this took them out of their selfish, immoral, cultural norms and focused their attention on pleasing the one whom they had now accepted as their Savior and Lord. So when we consider now also the Greek understanding of these words, along with the Jewish understanding of this principle, we can now come to a clearer understanding of what Paul meant when he said to please God by the way, holy way you live. Let me put it this way. Please God means to do his good pleasure in order to honor him and to enjoy his presence and fellowship. Just write it down. That should be the principle by which we guide our lives. This is not something that is, oh, we tack on later on. This is a foundational principle. And that's why Paul emphasizes this instruction he lays down as a foundational principle for the Christian life. He says, I ask and I urge you in the Lord Jesus. Now, when he says ask, that's a very polite term. But when he says, I urge you, it's very strong. I exhort you. I plead with you. And then he adds, and I'm asking and urging you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Living in a way that pleases God, therefore, is something that we as believers, we ought to be doing day after day. It should be taken as a command from God himself. So what is God's good pleasure for us? What is his intention for us as his children? God's will for us is our sanctification. He says it just plain and simple. God's will for us is our holiness. Some people say, I just wish I knew what God was trying to teach me through all of this suffering and all of these things that are going. He's trying to teach you to be holy. The idea of holiness comes from the Old Testament. By the way, nowhere in pagan literature of this time does anyone speak of holiness or holy living. But in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The word primarily means right moral behavior that is in keeping with God's own character. Moral character that represents God. And it is God's will, his divine intention, that we should become holy as he is holy. Our holiness is God's plan for us. 
Now, in this particular text, that holiness is to be manifest and practiced in our sexual purity. And he gets very practical here. He says that we should live lives of sexual purity. And here are several phrases that he uses about sexual immorality, and we need to look at them. Abstain from sexual immorality. Secondly, know or learn how to control your own body as a vessel of sexual activity and do this in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust as the Gentiles who do not know God. And third, do not transgress and wrong your brother in this matter. We'll look at each one of those briefly. Abstain from sexual immorality. The word abstain is very strong. It just simply means cut off and have nothing further to do with it. There is no compromise in this command. Abstain from sexual immorality. Now, Paul has mentioned several times in this book so far to the Thessalonians, I've wrote, written to you, I've instructed you, you remember what I have told you, and these are the instructions. And so these Thessalonians knew very clearly what he was talking about when he said sexual immorality. But I think I ought to do just what Paul did, and I want to be very clear. So I'm going to list what might be included in this term sexual immorality. It comes from the word pornea. Pornea in Greek essentially means illicit sexual activity. It is a general inclusive word that means any kind of sexual immorality, and it occurs about 25 times in the New Testament. And it refers primarily to fornication and adultery. It therefore includes any kind of sexual action outside the context of heterosexual marriage. It would therefore include cohabitation, premarital sex, casual sex, and prostitution. It also would include homosexuality. According to the scripture, homosexuality is a sin. I have texts, and I can share with you afterwards if you want them, from Genesis, from Leviticus, from Romans, from 1 Corinthians, from 1 Timothy, and the book of Jude. And it's very clear language. And despite the attempts of many to downplay these texts or to reinterpret them, it is very clear in the original Greek, homosexuality is a sin against God. The Bible also includes sensuality or lewdness or debauchery. It's listed with the evils that include sexual promiscuity and perversion. 
It's known as lewdness or debauchery. It comes from the word, the Greek word sense, which pertains to all of our five senses. So sensuality is a total devotion to the gratification of the senses, to the exclusion of our spiritual life and soul. Sensuality is an abuse of our God-given gifts, and those who are caught up in sensuality abuse the gift of sight by feasting the eyes on forbidden images, which would include pornography. That's quite a list. It's brief, but it's powerful instruction. Total abstinence. Abstain from all sexual immorality. It must not have a part in our life if we are going to please God. Secondly, know or learn how to control your own body as a vessel of sexual activity in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, as the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, I believe <clears throat> that when Paul says, learn how to control your own vessel, he is referring to our physical body as the instrument of sexual activity. Sexual activity is a physical act of the human body. And Paul tells us that we must somehow learn to control this body, this physical body, or it will control us. These lustful passions are very strong. And when we let them drive us and control us, and these desires overpower us, we let them guide our actions instead of controlling them. You might ask, well, how in the world do you do that? How do you resist these temptations that come to every person in this room? John Piper, I think, has given us a simple but very effective strategy. It's two-sided. First of all, we need to resist, fight back, against all sexual temptation and lust. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Romans 8, 13 says, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We must learn to intentionally, actively say no to those lustful thoughts and desires that come into our minds. Now, some lustful thoughts and images come into your mind, and you've got about five seconds to decide whether you're going to let it take over or whether you are going to push it out and resist. And you need to just actively say, no, you are out of here. In the name of Jesus, you do not have part in me. But you also need to do a second thing, and that is replace these images and temptations and desires with the beautiful image of the beauty of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all, 
with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And for this reason, sorry, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so we need to receive this vision from him. Let the image of him forgiving us, accepting us, replace the images of lust. We are fixing our gaze on the glory of the Lord, and we do that mainly through his word. We linger over the sweet, beautiful descriptions of his person and his work. And I mean that literally. When you are feeling the temptation to somehow satisfy some physical need for pleasure, replace it sometime with a desire, what does it feel like to stand in God's presence and feel his forgiveness? To enjoy the look of acceptance in his eyes and to see in him that he loves you, he in he actually delights to have you there. To know what it feels like to have received the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and to know that even though you failed, he is there and he's going to give you the power. Do you know that kind of a thrill? We need to marinate our minds receptively by faith in the crock pot of God's word. Only John Piper could say that. <laughs> we fix our eyes, the eyes of our hearts on Jesus. And the more we are enamored with the beauty of Christ and his glory, the less we will be tempted by the lustful passions of the body. Resist and replace. Replace with the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. Third, Paul says, let no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Now, this is a very difficult phrase in Greek. But basically, it means this, that we are not to abuse or wrongfully use our brothers and sisters with immoral sexual acts. Therefore, it includes rape, and incest, and sexual assault. And so we now need to add those to our list of sexual sins. Sexual abuse uses others as an object to satisfy their own desires. Lust is essentially a selfish desire. It uses others by which we can satisfy our own pleasures. The fact is, there is a world of difference between lust and love, between dishonorable sexual practices which use the partner and true lovemaking which honors the partner, between selfish desire to possess and the unselfish desire to love, cherish, and respect. Rape and incest and sexual assault are very shameful and often violent ways 
that sexual abuse is practiced in our society. Did you know that every 68 seconds, someone in America is sexually assaulted? One out of six women in the U.S. have suffered some kind of sexual abuse in their lifetime. And Colorado is rated sixth among the states for the highest level of rape. If anyone is struggling with these sexual sins, or someone you know, I ask you today to engage in the battle, but don't do it alone. If you need help, please get in touch with us or someone on the pastoral staff. We have counselors, we have resources, and we can help. We can do this in the strictest of confidence, but do not battle these strong emotions alone. Please get help. You see, these are very serious matters, and they must not be disregarded. That's why Paul ends this section with a very stern warning. God is an avenger in all these matters. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Whoever disregards this disregards God, not man. What Paul is saying here is very serious. He's not saying that if you engage in sin, he's going to discipline you. He's saying you will be judged as the Gentiles who do not know God. The judgment Paul considers here is not just some simple discipline procedure. It is really the judgment of those who are ungodly. He says in 2 Thessalonians, when he returns in vengeance and in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, according to Ephesians chapter 5. Colossians chapter 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Do not ignore this. But God has a promise, and we end with this. In just one very brief little phrase, Paul said, but God gives his Holy Spirit to you. I wish he had said more about this. There's sometimes I wish he could have added a little bit. But let's take this on face value. How are we to be pure and holy in our sexual life? 
You know, sexual desires are very strong. And we somehow, given our cultural norms, feel we have a right to them and that we enjoy them, all kinds of sexual pleasures. And the standards of our culture are so highly promoted and commonly accepted that it seems almost impossible to live a holy life in this area of sexual purity. But if we are to please a holy God, we must pursue holiness in this area as well. And it is God who gives us who? His Holy Spirit. And it's He who works in us to transform us, to change our desires from the fleshly pleasures to His spiritual delights in His presence. He says, work out your own salvation, but it is God, the Holy Spirit, who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let me just conclude. Let's make clear we've understood the argument of this text. I put it on the screen. First, God's call is to holiness. In verse 7, be holy, he says, because I am holy. Secondly, God's will for us is our holiness. Verse 3. Third, God's Spirit is a Holy Spirit. Verse 8, we just saw, who is given to all his people in order to make them holy. Fourth, God's judgment will fall upon all unholiness. Therefore, without holiness, it is impossible to please God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, this word is very powerful. And it's very strong. And it hits us right where we live. Every day we live with our, in our body and we battle all of these sensual pleasures and the temptations. And we think, Lord, what's wrong with enjoying a day at the beach or in the mountains? What's wrong with a good steak dinner? Why can't I enjoy life, even the sexual pleasures? Haven't you given us a body to enjoy? And yet, Lord, when those desires so control us that we have forgotten how to enjoy you, it becomes sin. Oh, teach us, Father, how to be holy. Plant within us today a holy desire to please you by holy living. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.